Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. Ariana Neruzzi is a reporting fellow for both the Pulitzer Center and the Ground Truth Project. She's a photojournalist, the first one for whom that is her primary focus that we've had on this podcast. Ariana, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. Ariana is a recent graduate of Hofstra with a master's degree in multimedia storytelling from the Columbia School of Journalism. All right, so can you first, before we get into the, the things that you've worked on, share the story of your journalism path? Yeah, so I would say it definitely started with love for documentaries, but the true start would have to be three years ago. I was visiting a friend in the Netherlands and my luggage was lost in the Amsterdam airport. So I was looking at flyers, brochures to kill time. And I saw a flyer for the World Press, um, World Press Photo Exhibition in 2018. And I was immediately drawn in. So I was like, I have to go. Um, I ended up going on the last day before I took a bus out of there. And I only had enough cash for myself. So I went in alone. And I was just captivated by the issues these like contemporary photographers shed light on. Um, you know, they were uplifting, they were horrifying, but I really was always been a fan of photojournalism, but I was extremely, you know, it caught my attention that, wow, they really shed light on a topic through a single or a couple images. And I would have never known about these international issues had I not gone to this. So that drew me in and I was applying to grad schools, you know, about six months later, I applied to Columbia, I applied to film school and I applied to law school. So Columbia was the last one I learned that I got into and I was like, oh my gosh, I have to go and I wanna pursue visual documentary storytelling. So that was kind of the beginning. Can you, uh, is there anything that happened uh, in your childhood that got you particularly interested in journalism? No, my parents are constant, you know, the news is on 24 seven. I was living there with them during COVID um, and it was constant news. It still pretty much is. So always taught, you know, read the newspaper, take in multiple sources, um, but I loved, documentaries just growing up throughout the years um, of course as I got older high school on I was very interested but I would say it's a multiple things definitely is my parents a, is there a genre of documentary that you're particularly interested in I mean kind of everything like I love crime I love you know international issues I, I really will watch anything I'd say um so where did you learn photography so photography started kind of as a hobby growing up. I received my first camera in the beginning of high school, just would photograph friends, street photography. Um, after the World Press photo, you know, I was an exhibition. I wanted to pick my camera back up. I would go down to Mexico. I'm from San Diego. So I'd drive down to kind of shoot what I saw there. Nothing too crazy. Um, and then I learned the more technical side in Nina Berman's class in the fall semester at Columbia. And then I still am learning photography. I'd say like every day, you know, I try to watch tutorials on YouTube, but. All right. So what's your style and how did you develop it? So my style is still developing, like I just said, but I would say consuming and maybe going as far as to study other photographers work that I enjoy um, that kind of has helped me bridge the disconnect between these really intricate moments that you notice when you're entrenched in a story or entrenched in a life or, a, you know, happening. And then to translate that to like, a coherent photo, right? To tell a story to mass audiences, it's the goal. Um, so I think that studying other people's work and then 
you know, I'm really still developing my, my style for sure, but I think location plays a role in it. So whether it's like capturing a refugee community in San Diego and you want to show, okay, it's December, but there's these palm trees and beautiful skies or, you know, addiction in rural Illinois, like here's this family and here they are having like a barbecue and, you know, their beautiful lush backyard. So kind of looking at our surroundings through layering my like composition of my images and playing with like depth of field. And it's detail oriented. So you're, you're very yes. detail oriented with it. Yep. Okay. Yes. Um, so explain how you got involved with both Ground Truth and Pulitzer. So yeah, Ground Truth, um, both have been amazing. Uh, when I was graduating from Columbia last spring, they added some fellowships just because of COVID and how kind of, you know, our opportunities had shifted, but there was a lot more COVID-centric uh, fellowships and work. So there was the Ground Truth Migration Fellowship which was perfect for me. I'd done some work in you know, immigration and that was an interest of mine in grad school. So I applied, um, you know, I met Wilson and Ali and um, the team and I was eventually you know, selected for the opportunity. So that's kind of how I came about Ground Truth. They've been really, really amazing in helping me like lay a foundation for my early career. And then Pulitzer also did a similar like Columbia fed in um, fellowship grant through Columbia for their uh, crisis reporting grants. So I applied to that um, with another story initially, and then just been working with them for pretty much the last year. How does that work? You, you come up with the idea, they, they say, yes, we will give you the grant money. And what happens from there? Yeah, so that's exactly how it works. You send out a kind of pitch and they say yes. And from there, you work with um, Kim Sawyer. She's kind of the head of the fellowship and she serves as an editor. You know, you check in, you meet, it's really what you make it. You know, if you have, I was doing primarily visuals, so it wasn't so like a lot of them are writing focused. So I didn't check in as often, but it was kind of like, here's what I'm doing. You have an advisor, you have peers, there's amazing conferences, which were all held virtually, but I've, I've received a lot of feedback from my peers that I met at those conferences. And, and what's been the, the biggest thing that you got out of the feedback that you've gotten both, I guess, on your photography and your writing recently? I think pitching, because again, I'm still so early in my career that so many people have different opinions and styles and um, methods of pitching and advice, right? So I think taking them all into consideration and kind of showing different people and coming to this, you know, happy medium where, you know, I'm like, okay, this is my work, but all these great opinions and feedback have helped me out. Um, pitching, pitching helps, I'd say. You mentioned that your career is short, but you've done a number of pretty interesting things. We can go through, through them here. You talked about being entrenched. We'll talk about being entrenched. Uh, one piece that I wanted to talk about was a piece that you did while you were a student at Columbia uh, Graduate School, a piece looking at life in Iran early in the pandemic as a foreshadowing for what life was going to be like in the United States. And you wrote not just about life, but how economic sanctions were impacting things. This was an instance taking something that you and your family knew and making it into a journalism project. What do you remember about that one? Yeah, so my father is Iranian. Um, so I, we always celebrate Persian New Year at my grandparents' house and you know my family from across the country or in within California, we all come together. And that night was actually the night that California went under lockdown, which was one of, I think it was the first, the first state um, by like a day. 
So everyone was really like, whoa, like, should we be wearing masks? No one really knew what was going on. But I remember I had a couple family members that had immigrated from Iran within like the last decade or five years. And so they are very closely tied to their family and friends back home still. And they were pretty like they kind of knew what was going on more than we did. And I also remember one of my sources who she's in the U.S., but her mother's still in Iran. She told me, you know, her mother said, like, it's a matter of time. It's just going to happen to you guys as well. And like, we were both kind of in disbelief. And what do you know, right? Here we are. So I remember that kind of foreshadow, but also that the world is not such a big and different place. Obviously, yes, with the sanctions and all of those issues, we are a lot more fortunate here with the opportunities we've had for um, safety and protective measures. But just kind of learning that this is something that borders can't keep out. It's a big what, takeaway. What is it like to uh, kind of have your family be an important part of a piece? It was interesting. Like it was something that I wasn't, you know, I was in school, so it was kind of not going there yet, right? Whereas now I could be a little bit more experimental with it, but it was really cool and it felt good to incorporate, you know, and shed light on those issues that they've been going through in different ways in Iran and certainly a good way to show to take a story idea and develop it uh, and certainly a good lesson for anyone that's interested in uh, and aspires to a career in journalism all right you wrote about home healthcare work- workers as well undocumented ones and the challenges that they face can you tell us about uh, what you found there and if you did any follow up uh, on it yeah so i was working on the home healthcare industry beat a little bit in like the fall of 2019 so i had some sources and connections there come COVID. And that was a big question. I think my mom actually brought it up to me and I was like, that's such a good point. Like, I wanna look more into this. And, you know, we learned later that New York State and the governor kind of navigated some issues around the home healthcare and nursing home industry a little poorly to say the least. So back in March of 2020, hearing that, you know, these people didn't even have PPE from their agencies, from the government, um, and they had to buy their own, and if they couldn't, they didn't have any, um, on top of the lack and the shortage of PPE as was, um, that was alarming, and caring for these at-risk patients, and then the fear of their immigration status on top of everything, and how that affected their safety, um, yeah, it was, it was a lot, I haven't done follow-up, but I really should have, and you know, makes me think I'm just going to shoot an email or a text later today to see how everyone's doing. because That's it's important. How was it getting people to talk to you about that topic? Um, so since I had the source or like the connections within the beat, it was a little bit easier, but I had like a, um, an advocate who translated and I think gave that extra level of like comfort and security to the source. But um, I think they, they wanted to get their story out there. So that was something that I commended. Completely unrelated, the value of a translator is certainly important uh, in, a, in a situation like that. I'll take one from a much more trivial subject. I wrote a hockey story once about a player who was Russian who spoke no English, and I brought a student from Princeton University to be the translator for the interview. And I was, uh, this player had been very timid, but when he saw a translator there, he completely opened up. It changed the dynamic. It made the interview way, way, way easier. Uh, and I'm curious uh, what your experience has been since you've done international related stories uh, dealing with translators. Yeah, I think uh, exactly what you said. It really opens up the doors to like a different realm within the interview. Like people are less timid. They're 
they can say things that they wouldn't even if they speak let's say some some English they they can say things that they would be able to say that they wouldn't have been able to say just like us right if we were speaking to someone in another language we wouldn't know the right thing to say so I think it really does open doors it makes the source more comfortable and it gives you kind of that extra like if you have a question and you're trying to formulate it sometimes the translator can kind of help and just inform the interview a bit more. Yep, it's it's definitely on top of it being useful. It's a cool experience to to work right. with someone like that. Um, another uh, story that involves both the United States and another country. Can you explain the multimedia project that you did about Friendship Park and the Border Wall, uh, and elaborate on how you came to write about Robert Vivar and what he's had to deal with in living on the United States and the Mexican sides of the border? Yeah, so I reported my master's project at Columbia on Friendship Park, and I wanted to do a multimedia project that had to do with space, because um, there's so many ways to, you know, capture that visually and, and with audio and, of course, text. So I found this binational park, Friendship Park. It's in Tijuana and San Diego. And, you know, it originally used to be a place where people could, that were separated by the border wall, like loved ones could have like a picnic or they could hug each other even. Obviously now, um, I don't think it's open on the US side or recently reopened, but when it is open, people can touch pinkies through this mesh border wall. So not the same as having lunch. There's a lot of restrictions, but it's still a way for people to, to see their loved ones. And some people travel from all over the US and then their family members come from far South Mexico or even Central America. So there's a lot of wonderful stories there. I wanted to kind of, I wanted to know the story of the park. So the people involved and then the history. So I traced the history of the park and corresponding border policy. Operation Gatekeeper was actually an initiative that was targeted specifically at the park, crazy enough. Um, so, you know, taking a look at that, scraping like CBP and government websites for data, tracing how like deaths um, actually were pushed east when there was more regulations on the western side. The park is, sits right on the um, ocean. So, um, yeah, and then in terms of the characters, there were uh, a heavy uh, deportee community presence was there. So there was deported veterans, there was deported parents, mothers, and uh, Robert Vivar was a wonderful source. He really just is such a kind person and introduced me to the church service there, the binational church service, to different members of his community. And his story was that, you know, he was a two-time deportee. Um, obviously, in two times, he did resist his deportation. And even when he was back in Mexico the second time, it just, you know, it really took a toll. Um, but his story is one, I think, of like gratitude and acceptance. Um, and just kind of the story is how he accepted his life there and, and made the best of it. And even though he can literally live at the time uh, and like a condo on the border wall so he can see the U.S. You know, he used to wake up just miserable, right? Seeing that and now he just accepts it. And I think besides all the socio-political uh, components of the story, his his character and his uh, practice of gratitude and acceptance is just inspiring, uplifting. The way that you talk about it, it makes me think that there's a big difference between um hearing about him, reading about him, which gets you certainly closer to him and the experience of it, and then actually meeting him and seeing the experience of what someone like that is going through, that people who are not, who just have an opinion about the border wall 
aren't necessarily taking into account. So what you're doing is you're opening up his story to the rest of the world, I, I guess, in theory. Right. Yep. All right, shifting gears, one more. Uh, in May 2020, you did a visual portrait series for New York City Lens on the class of 2024, question mark. So explain how you do portraits. And all of this will be linked in the show notes, by the way. Explain how you do portraits from thinking it out to prep, to set up, to how many shots you take. Wow, yeah. So thinking back <laughs> to that story, um, yeah, I mean, I wanted to, to focus on students that were accepted to a college in New York City. And during that time in May, it was, you know, a disaster, right, with COVID. So where are they going to go? If things were open, would they feel comfortable going? And of course, photographing them. And they were students from all over the country. And even internationally, I had a source in China. So um, I looked at a lot of, you know, at the time I was looking at virtual photojournalism, virtual photography, and I'd seen how other photographers had um, shot visual portraits, made visual portraits. So I kind of looked at their work. I talked to some friends that I had, and we really just kind of on FaceTime, like mapped out, like, how would you shoot them? Like they're at the desk, like sit this way, no, sit that way. So it was kind of a thing like that, where I would explain everything very thoroughly to them, what you have to do for photojournalism, because people don't really understand until you really walk them through it. And that's, that's the only fair and, and the smoothest way to do it. So prepped them, had them show me around their space. I wanted to have them at their desks because like, they're students and all they would do is just sit on their computer to do school. And that was part of the story. So kind of just mapping it out, also working with the sources to see the space like you would do in a real, a regular in-person shoot. So yeah, that's, that was the method. Nice. That that uh, that must be an interesting experience. I've certainly posed for portraits for school and such, uh, but it's a little different when it's for a, a journalistic project. All right. So Ground Truth had contacted us about this piece that you did for the San Diego Union Tribune. They brought it to to our attention uh, as something that we might want to talk about, and they were I think they were right. It's a photo essay about refugee families dealing with the challenge of virtual learning part of a series of ground truth pieces called Here to Stay. And when I was looking at it and the work that you did, my first pass, I was kind of like, okay. The second time through though, I realized that what you were essentially doing was you were a historian documenting life. And when you're documenting life, you're capturing day to day. And some of it can be mundane. Some of it can be exciting. Some of it's more telling if you look at it really closely. I like the picture of a girl who was doing a sketch of an Instagram phone in one hand, pencil in the other, head down, locked in, uh, focus-wise. There were a lot of heads looking at screens in this uh, because of virtual learning. What do you want people to take from this piece, both overall and about the refugee experience? Yeah, so um, thank you. I appreciate the, the historian comment because it is true. It's We're just documenting history. <laughs> but I think that the piece, I really wanted to address this misconception that, okay, when refugees arrived on American soil, they're fine. They're normal. They just have the same opportunities and leg up as you and I and, you know, the next person. Um, I think that there's like so many hurdles in the process of seeking refuge. Um, your entire family can be born in refugee camps. Um, you have this extensive screening process. Maybe one person doesn't make it through and you have to just keep trying. And then you arrive here with no like linguist, linguistic or cultural similarities. And your children are now growing up and going to school here. So there's like that disconnect. That's hard, right? And that's just a couple of the hundreds or thousands of things these people encounter. So 
I really hope the takeaway could touch on these like extra hurdles that these families tackle and kind of show the nitty gritty of like, okay, so virtual education is hard for everyone. Imagine watching, you know, your two kids, your sister's nine kids, and you're a university student yourself. So like, I think that, you know, this story focused on an intergenerational commitment to education on, on, on for mothers and, and then their families. And so I wanted just the takeaway to be like, these moms are, they're killing it. Like I want the readers to see how hard that they work every day. And like, I'm really proud of them. And, you know, I think that anyone else that hears and, and views their story would be too. What was the time commitment that you put into it? Um, so finding families was a bit of a challenge because, you know, it is a, bit of a segregated community in a sense like they're not no one wants to open up their doors to have someone come photograph them but I so I had a couple hurdles with that but I found this amazing community organizer his name's Dan from say San Diego it's a you know an education uh not advocacy group but like an education group that helps support students in San Diego County and he connected you know he is from I believe Kenya himself and he said that I know some others like let you know explain my project explain your project let me connect you so we eventually all got on zoom i had a powerpoint and then on zoom there's a cool option speaking of translators that he was able to translate everything i was saying as i was speaking he's amazing that's one of like million amazing things he's done for me <laughs> and um so yeah they they then opened up they were really interested in sharing their story you know these mothers already obviously cared about their children's education because they're part of this org with dan um, but they wanted to share because they wanted to show the struggles and show the work that they're doing. So yeah, that's kind of how I got access. Um, I went to their house afterwards without my camera twice to just once with Dan and then once alone again to speak with them, even though the mothers, except for one, didn't speak English. Um, so two of the families. So then by the third time I pulled out my camera and after that I went like to each person's house maybe once or twice a week for about two months, like some weeks, you know, I'd only see one family, um, but about two months. So it was like a three month process of working with them. And then of course, all the post-production work and pre-production work. What did you do to build up trust with the people besides uh, working with Dan? Yeah, so um, yeah, Dan was, the, in the as I explained, kind of like the intro, the bridge, but afterwards it was really just going there and not pulling my camera out right away and like explaining that to them, you know, and I think at times maybe they were comfortable if I did, but I just like to take a somewhat of a slow approach on that, um, especially when there's like cultural differences and, and language barriers, but just speaking with like every family member kind of going around the room, everyone was stationary on their computers and talking to the different family members, seeing what they're doing. Um, like, I'm just, I think a very relaxed, person and I think that's why I, I love the work that I do because you can talk to anyone right it's part of this job so I don't mind like you know just sitting on the ground sitting on the floor talking to people in their house or eating dinner with them with you know foods that I'm not that used to right so it's just kind of being flexible and malleable and just being a real person right did you um did you get their reaction to it after it ran yeah they were really happy I sent it out on WhatsApp and it ran on Ground Truth and the Union Tribune so yeah, they were really happy to see their story shared and it meant a lot to them I think it meant a lot to me I couldn't have done it without them obviously so uh, uh, that was my next question was going to be what did you take away from the experience um yeah so I think it was in addition to everything I described right it was the process of kind of honing in on a specific question like what is refugee um, what is 
impact of virtual education on refugee students and their families, right? And then kind of executing the answer visually. So like, how do I find families, build their trust, become a part of their everyday lives and incorporate a camera and then act with a fly on the wall. Um, and then how do I do this story justice and show the public that it's important, like convince not only editors, but everyone like community members, like this is important. And I suppose what happens is 20 years from now, when you're a veteran of this kind of thing, one, you'll be mentoring other people in how to do it, but it'll feel maybe a little bit easier uh, as you, as it comes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, I, I want to talk about the future in a second, but first I want to ask about the project that you're working on with the grant from Pulitzer, uh, Families Losing Someone to Addiction During COVID-19. Uh, where does that stand and what are you doing? Yeah, so um, going off of that, like being a little bit easier, definitely this time around, right, you have a bit more confidence than just, okay, this is the timeline, generally speaking, for this kind of project. So going forward, yeah, I, I began the Pulitzer grant um, in March, I wanna say, and the project was personal to me. It's kind of looking at how COVID impacted addiction for many families across America. So I found this family um, in Peoria, Illinois-ish general region um, yep. that lost their daughter. The mother lost her daughter to an overdose back in November. And the daughter, they have a very unique story. It kind of focuses on motherhood and family dynamics if not just COVID and addiction, but um, these family dynamics of this woman who was 18 years old, she passed away and she actually had a son herself. So, you know, there is a lot of layers to the story. Um, and yeah, the, your question was just kind of like about the project. Yeah, I photographed, I was able to make it out. It was a far drive. I was living in Chicago in the spring. So it was like a three hour drive each way. So I got two full days of shooting and I'm actually trying to go back probably this month um, to do a little bit more, but I'm also incorporating writing and just doing justice to her story. And, you know, the mother really wants it told if it could just help one other person, so. Sure. You write, you broadcast. By the way, I like your narration style on the uh, audio that I've heard you do. You do video <laughs> cases, you're bilingual, you're a photographer, you're an artist. What ambitions do you have regarding combining all these things into future work? Oh my gosh, so. Thank you sure. <laughs> for all your kind words. Um, I think my goal is to, you know, eventually on the journalism side, I have lots of other outside goals, but in the journalism side is definitely to direct documentaries. Um, but in terms of these skills you so kindly mentioned, um, I'd say I love to work on long form investigative multimedia pieces that are visual visually, visually heavy. Um, like I love what time, you know, like New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, what they all do with this like print video photo combo. Um, is there a skill that you don't have that you'd like to have? Um, I would love to speak uh, other languages. You call me bilingual. That's very kind of you. I, I do speak some Spanish. I wouldn't say I'm like fully fluent anymore, but I would love to obviously be completely fluent in Spanish and speak other languages. I think that'd be that would just up my game like a thousand percent. And I would also love, I'm learning, but like do 3D animation. I think that that would be super um, helpful to making videos. <laughs> All right, so you have a lot of different uh, things, paths that you can go. I, I guess, I'm guessing that as a younger person that you grew up and you were like, oh, I like this, 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 and you switched them yes. all together. I went through the same thing. So that's very cool. Uh, Good to hear. I, yeah, it, it, it works. It can be a little challenging because you like everything. 
but uh, it can be done. All right, so let's wrap up. Um, is there a journalism organization that you're not affiliated with that you would like to salute and pay tribute to? I wouldn't say Photoville. I mean, I guess it's a journalism org, but Photoville does amazing work. Um, I love their, everything they put out. I love their festivals. Um, the Lily also, I like, um, I would love to, I'm trying to maybe pitch a story to them. So those are just two. There's so many out there. Cool. Ariana and Yaruzi, uh, thank you for taking the time to join us. Best of luck in all your work. We look forward to seeing the many good things that you come up with in the future. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It means a lot. Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics. And I'm Nick Hershaw, and I research the history of New York sports. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. Find the Journalism History Podcast at journalism-history.org slash podcast and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Ground Truth's mission is to restore journalism from the ground up by supporting the next generation of journalists through field reporting that serves undercovered corners of the United States and the world. You can find them at thegroundtruthproject.org. The Pulitzer Center raises awareness of underreported global issues through direct support for quality journalism and a unique program of education and public outreach. You can visit them at pulitzercenter.org. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at journalismsalute at gmail.com.